0: All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fahnd and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith, in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today is Greg Ferrand. Greg, hey, Josh. How's it going all the way down yeah. there in North Carolina, North, North Cackalacky? Dude,
1: yeah, it sounds like someone from Maryland talking about us here, North Cackalacky. <laughs> yeah, dude, doing well, buddy. Was, How are you doing, my man?
0: I'm I'm doing well. And actually, p- to your comment, I was taught that phrase North Cackalacky by high school students from North Carolina. So they were
1: messing with you, just so you know. They were. Totally oh, with here you. we go. They were, yeah. That was trying like, to I identify was in... someone from Baltimore, right? Got it.
0: I was the loser, the butt of that
1: joke. <laughs> no, it's not true. People say that here in North Kakilaki. Well, they were giving good. you insider intel.
0: But does Greg Farron say North Kakalaki? That's a
1: question. Oh, only if I've had uh, a couple few. But other than that, okay. it, it comes out if I've got a, a gentle spiritual buzz. But aside from that, it's what? always North <laughs> Carolina. <laughs> Would you say it from the pulpit? <laughs> oh, God, no. It de- <laughs> it, oh, that's God, the thing
0: no. that'll push you over, right? Like that's... <laughs> no. The Episcopal no, Church that, is like, all right, you can say what you want about like gay people being cool, but don't say North Kakalaki, you're done.
1: Right. And, and if you also in the Episcopal Church, you can't you can't say uh, amen. You got to say amen. I'm just saying uh, that's a That's just just yeah, a I personal just in some of the context where I've been. If you say amen, it is uh, your persona non grata, <laughs> you uh, but you got to say amen that. like a proper, uh, you know, someone who's descended from uh, the Brits. Uh, is, you know, I keep it. calm and steady on. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Well, Greg,
0: so today we're going to do something uh, that we don't often get to do on Rethinking Faith, which is talk specifically about the Bible
1: with a Bible
0: scholar. Mm. typically we hang out with like a lot of theologians Theologians,
1: dude yeah we're the- philosophers, theologically rich right it's true
0: because we're heretics that like you know don't even know <laughs> we, what the bible is
1: right we can splash around in theology all day long and really feel good about ourselves and then we have to get together with a biblical scholar yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> well, shit me, gets real
0: I, so let me tell you a real this is a true story <laughs> and then we'll introduce our guests um so today i had a plan going to work and i was like "All right." Um, I'm not gonna have, you know, any beer at work uh, today. Listen, if you don't know, I'm a brewer, so like sometimes we have beer at work. Uh, I wasn't gonna have any beer because I was like, okay, I can like talk theology and philosophy after having a beer or two, but when it comes to Bible, like I really need my mind to be sharp. And so I wasn't. Lister, going this to is have true. Any this beer. is a,
1: this is true. This is a real this is a genuine story. This is actually <laughs> true. sorry, go yeah, ahead, go. go ahead, Jess.
0: And then Uh, I had forgot that uh, Tim and Noah from New Evangelicals uh, was going to stop by the brewery today. And so uh, they came through and hung out. And then also uh, a listener of our podcast came through and hung out. And I had beers with both of those people and then was (laughs) like, oh, crap, I was not supposed to do that. Um, And so now here we are. And I brought a beer with me because I had to. But I'm excited because... Uh, Daniel Kirk is here with us today to tell us all about the book of Romans, which is excellent because Romans is Paul's systematic theology book where you go to To prove Calvin (laughs)
1: to prove that Calvin was right the whole time to prove
0: that Calvin was right and to get all of your (laughs) theological answers as a Christian. And so he wrote a book about how that's what Romans is for. So Daniel, thank you. For coming on the podcast to... Daniel, I
1: apologize. Out of the gate. I'm so sorry, my man. Coming ideas. on out of the gate. Daniel, thank you for being here. That, that is that is not true. But you know, the true true <laughs> part is that Daniel is a biblical scholar, and he wrote uh, Romans for normal people. But all the rest about the, our theological presuppositions about why you did, that's what we're getting into. But sorry for painting you to a, a Calvinistic quarter out of the gate.
2: I think that your guests on the show should be FedExed a six-pack of Josh's lovely beer uh, to help them endure uh what, what happens here. This is this is my early assessment after uh, 35 seconds on your show. You are
1: so that's spot fair. On. I'm writing,
0: I'm taking a note. Six packs
1: <laughs> Yeah, can we put that into the budget? We'll put that into the budget.
0: Yeah. To our non-existent budget. I got it. Right noted. <laughs>
1: So Daniel, uh, welcome, man. So you've got a, um, uh, a a rich kind of story that's led you. And one of the things we do on and rethinking faith, we we talk with a lot of authors, and as Josh said, we talk with a lot of theologians, and occasionally we get some fun uh, biblical scholars as well. But we know that even what led people to write books, or for you to write this book, or to become a biblical scholar. Uh, it doesn't come from nothing, right? It's and one of the things we love to do is kind of nest work and story. Before we kind of delve into the uh, rich complexities, perspectives, ideas, historicity uh, uh, of literary, literary angle of, of Romans, kind of could you just introduce yourself in a nutshell? Where you know, t- tell us a, a, just in a nutshell your story, and then what led you in your journey of all the things you could have been, clearly you've got a, a brilliant mind uh, in, in, in looking at your book and uh, in, in hearing some of your story, but w- what led you to give yourself to become a biblical scholar and ultimately what led you to write this particular book on Romans? Wow. In um, three seconds or less. Yeah, right?
2: Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, the, probably the, you know... I grew up in church, um, had very positive, uh, youth group experiences, uh, actually in high school, my family moved, my dad was in the Navy. So we moved regularly and, uh, school itself was a very hard place and high school youth group was very like safe place friends, um, basically where I found, you know, acceptance and all that. So it was, it was good space for me. And, um, you know, so just to say that, um, think I had sort of a, a positive, rich, uh, upbringing in, in church, uh, you know, the, of course, everybody, you know, has their regrets and, um, uh, you know, as a high school youth group kid. So, um, every time I hear you shook me all night long, the ACDC, it reminds me of a girl who, and it just breaks my heart because we were high school youth group kids, you know, um, anyway, um, and in the Wake Forest, uh, street from you there, um, uh, uh I'm sorry, there's this whole anyway. Um North Carolina in North Carolina. Uh and my my first semester there, I, I ended up taking a uh that was called Faith, Vision, and we read C. S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and some um, uh read an introductory theology book and just talked about how uh, these writers' faith influenced, uh you know, how how you get faith influencing their writing, and that made me realize that this is what I love. I love theology. I love talking about this stuff, and so I'm thinking about whether you know a ministerial call would be for me. uh And then had kind of a, an intense prayer sort of experience during my where you know I thought I heard God telling me wanted me to be a. Sorry, I just said he. I've got a old habits die hard. Um, and so I just, that was it, like, you know, okay, God wants me to be a preacher, so, you know, I majored in religion, took Greek and Hebrew in undergrad, because I knew I'd have to do it in seminary, went to Westminster, City where Pete Enns was one of my professors, uh, people here probably know him, and um, when I was in, and just, you know, on that track, and then um, when I was, because I was really focused and on that track, I was about to graduate from seminary at
1: Twenty-four slash twenty, and I think we've got a bit of a technological uh, situation with Daniel. Hopefully, he'll be able to reconnect one. right oh, now. I paused. Sorry. Yeah, you, you you froze there for a bit. Uh,
2: okay, so at the end of seminary. Um, basically I was 24, almost 25. I was like, well, I can either go kill a youth group for five years until they'll let me pastor adults, or I could spend those five years getting a PhD and, um, just to prepare myself what a, uh, to be like a pastor to nerdy, overeducated white people, you know, like go be in a university town or something like that. Um, uh, who knows, maybe I can end up Episcopalian one day.
1: Um, <laughs> and so, uh,
2: So I went to to Duke and did my PhD in New Testament there uh, under Richard Hayes um, and a good experience. And while I was doing that, uh, I was trying to get licensed to preach in my local presbytery. I was in a A more conservative Presbyterian denomination. And I had some differences with the Westminster Confession. And so they wouldn't license me to preach and had this big long thing where, you know, God wanted me to be a preacher, but my people wouldn't ordain me or license me. And but I tried and tried. So I got to the end of my grad school and hadn't really had my sights on being a professor. And yet the pastoral thing had fallen apart. so, you know, I just applied to a bunch of jobs, um, got one, <laughs> and uh, um, then I ended up dropping an F-bomb a little too early in a public meeting, and um, that job didn't last long, and then <laughs> I, I ended up being uh, on faculty at Fuller for a number of years, and again, you know, I think part of my story is that, you know, I always continue to to learn and listen and grow, and um, uh, I was becoming more open to and affirming uh, toward uh, the LGBT community, and a couple of my senior folks uh, on on my in my department uh, wouldn't stand for that, so they ended up making sure I didn't get tenure. Um, so that that kind of takes you through, uh, and, I, wow. and I ended up doing um, uh, leading a, a kind of a, a faith and spirituality and justice kind of integration fellowship in San Francisco for a few years. Um, so, you know, I think that my core conviction, uh, as I think about my writing and my work is that, um, Christianity practiced well can make the world a better place. And that's like, when I think about you know, the ways that I want to keep my, my finger in the pot of, um, you know, Christian scholarship or, you know, my own writing or, or those kinds of things, it, it really is that. And, kind of the flip side of that which is uh biblical interpretation and christianity done badly is a very very powerful force of destruction and Mm. that's worth that's so public right now and i think so visible um and so i think helping folks find better ways to um to handle the bible and to think uh theologically is uh that's something that that i still care passionately about even though i'm not uh a religious professional anymore by uh, by trade
1: okay so I'm, I'm just real quick josh i've just got to not nerd out on a couple of details since you had so much time in north carolina but so you you said and there was a little bit where you cut out there but you were at wake forest for your undergrad is that right yep for, okay. i was there for
2: two years and then i transferred to chapel hill to, uh okay
1: religion. now i did i did now i'm an old man uh i did campus ministry at Wake Forest from 1997 to 2001, and I'm not trying to date you, but were were you anywhere within that window of undergrad, or was that? I just before? missed you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and then you went to Westminster because originally I was a PCA pastor. I went to where people that couldn't get into Westminster go, which was Reformed Theological Seminary. This was the 90s. This was 97. Oh yeah. Uh, and So I was I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, and I was a PCA minister. Um, which was uh one of the um and I have dear dear friends uh, within the PCA uh others who consider me a profound heretic and a persona non grata. uh but just so, so you were also pursuing ordination within a conservative Presbytery I'm guessing ARP OPC uh PCA yeah, one, of those, yeah, one of those PCA yeah okay PCA uh yeah in in my particular presbytery you had to literally say the words of Josh and I have talked about this penal substitutionary atonement and you had to actually have a literal Adam and Eve. If you didn't have the, if there's so many specifics that you had to walk the tightrope or else you were out um, at that time. Now, again, this is the uh, late nineties, early two thousands. And maybe there's yeah, th- some... things aren't quite that generous anymore, but
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Okay. And then, so you, uh, you were at uh, Westminster, which means you were definitely uh, reformed in your perspective and, mm-hmm. uh, and you had Pete ends as your teacher for those of our listeners that don't know Pete. Uh, Pete is one of the um, co-hosts of the Bible for Normal People podcast, brilliant. Uh, he and Jared, uh, which again, uh, which is the, under the umbrella under which this uh, commentary, on, well, I don't know, can we call it a commentary on Romans? this this work, this book on Romans, uh, that Daniel's written, uh, Romans for normal people. it it really approaches uh, scripture, which which with a much more expansive, uh, I think, uh, historical, genuinely generous uh, appropriate uh, uh lens but let me just say this because many of our listeners are ex-evangelicals um, um but also i i was i was talking to some listeners this week that uh are definitely coming from an outside of a christian traditional lens um and they would ask the question um uh, you know they, they kind of approach it as the bible is used predominantly as a weapon um, and uh, they've seen primarily uh, harm caused by it. So I, I definitely, I, a lot of times, Josh and I assume the ex-evangelical presuppositions and, and and shifting from that movement to where we are. But let me ask this question. Uh, before we get into what you described, the the uh, biblical interpretation being used as a weapon. hmm I want to assume some of our, some of our audience are, well, they're like, well, of course, that's all it is. Why, why write the book of, why, why write the book about the Bible? I mean, I just want to say for some of our listeners, they're saying, I don't want to read the Bible. Uh, It's primarily used as a weapon Uh, and we'll get into the dangers of it in a minute. But I think for many people, those are kind of obvious and they almost kind of like, like Nietzsche described that you should put on gloves when you pick up the Bible because it's so toxic. Um, why why give your energy and work to studying this when it's been used uh so harmfully uh, why why shouldn't we just actually talk about uh things that are you know not uh two to five thousand years old in a way that actually are far more conducive to harmony within our cultural context versus a, a a book that's been so weaponized why why did you write this what would you say to them Why should they read your book um
2: Wow, I I think that be, it's precisely because the Bible has been weaponized that everyone should know how to read it well. um and uh that's um, I mean for for a lot of different reasons, but um, to be able to uh to know it well enough to understand that when somebody pulls out a verse or says, you know, this is what the Bible says um to say, yeah, you know the Bible does say that, and it also says this other thing, and it says these other things, and we're all making choices about which things the Bible say that that we think are definitive for the Christian faith in life, and um, and so uh, I think finding uh, finding the generous threads in Scripture, making the conscious decision about um, what which aspects of the way that the, the story of the people of God is depicted um, are, uh, are the ones that are compelling. uh, And that, I think that all that's important. The other, uh, but also here, the other thing is, you know, once you really start getting into the Bible and realize, um, I mean, this is like, this is where I geek out as a, as a Bible scholar, when you start realizing the, the weight of the, the human hands in the, in writing the Bible, not as a way to say, Oh, like, okay, we don't have to listen to it. But to say, oh, look, this is the way that this person thought about and reflected on the, the work of Jesus, right? And you know, like, but just to take like this, we're gonna be talking about Paul. Let's talk about the gospels for a minute. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which, you know, honestly on first block, they all look like they're saying the same thing, right? Um, and then the places where it looks like they're not, that the instinct often as um embodied in a lot of Christian traditions, not just conservative ones, is to think about how, well, they're really basically saying the same thing, even when they say different things, right? But, but what if you say, no, actually, we know for a fact that um, Matthew used Mark. So when Matthew and Mark say different things, you know what that means? That means Matthew decided, mm, I need to tell a different story here, and you know, similarly, Matthew and Luke share some material. And I, I think Luke probably used Matthew. That's not necessarily like a, a majority scholarly opinion, but it's a viable one. But even just to do it as an exercise, like, oh, they had some similar material, but like some the stuff that looks like the Sermon on the Mount, but that it's different for them. So Matthew has um, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, and it's this, you know, very lovely um. I, I don't know what it means at all, but it, it sounds very lovely. Um, Luke has blessed are the poor. And like, it, you know, if your instinct is, well, they're saying the same thing, you know, because it's all in the Bible. It's what Jesus says. Then, then Matthew becomes the interpretive lens, right? He says more. So what, you know, poor could mean a gazillion different things and Matthew shows us the one that's really it, but no, no, no. Luke made it blessed are the poor. Um in order to undergird his broader theology of here's a God who cares about the poor. And this is um, like material poverty is a condition in which um, people recognize their need for God and that God is going to respond to that and, you know, enter into that space in a special way. So uh, once you start recognizing that there are, there are human hands at work, it's less about, you know, then you can start, you know, getting some space from the idea that, well, the power in this book is the power of God to tell you why I'm right. And the power instead, oh, the, the power in this book is to invite us to understand how God is at work in the things that we understand to be good and right and beautiful and holy and, and righteous in, in the world. And, and there's a conversation here. And sometimes the Bible will say, this is what's good and right and beautiful and holy. And I'll say, I don't think so. And you know, and then, and then we're, we're in this dialogue and we're, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong. And maybe the, the Bible is gonna, is gonna shape me that way. Or maybe there are some things where I'm like, no, like, you know, finding the, the, the beautiful woman in the land you've conquered and back home to your, you know, as your wife, like that is not holy and good and beautiful. Um, and it's uh, that's, that's rape and, and slavery. Um, so, you know, like, but also then to say, okay, there's, there's biblical reasons why faithfully living out, out the Jesus story doesn't look like taking a captive from a foreign land home to be your wife if you're a soldier. Um, and, uh, and I think that the Bible is actually really helpful in, in helping us understand what, um, some key points of a life giving Jesus narrative, uh, might be that are, that are really important for, um, not just correcting our readings of the Bible, but for thinking about what what makes a truly Christian community um, and uh, as a community that I think uh is life-giving for its people and for its neighbors.
0: Yeah, Daniel, well said. Thank you for that. Um and I think too, like just how you're, I don't know, kind of framing the Bible um in some different ways uh is really helpful. Um, especially too for so you wrote like we said Romans for normal people. Romans is a book that I have intentionally avoided, <laughs> um, for a, a variety of reasons. Um, you know it's it just seems like well, so here I'll give a few. One, um, a lot of people that I am still friends with for some reason have used Romans as a weapon, uh, to you know hit me with or to try to prove that somehow their theological perspective is the right one. Um, Romans also is like, I feel like if we were to put three Bible scholars in a room and ask them about the book of Romans, we would get like nine different answers about what (laughs) Romans is. (laughs) And so like Romans has just been a hard book for me to approach. And so I've always enjoyed, um, you know, the, you know, Bible for Normal People uh, book series that they've put out. And so when I saw the Romans one, I was very excited because I was like, oh, well, maybe here's a resource that will give me, uh I don't know, a way that I can engage with Romans that, you know, doesn't suck. And I think you did that. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, I I actually I really I enjoyed it a lot. And it actually um I don't know, I was having fun. I was when I was reading it, Um which I I struggle with because I like there's some like biblical scholarship that I engage. In. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Um, but then my mind often just goes more towards uh, like theology and philosophy. Not that those mm-hmm. things are necessarily fully separate, um, but I tend to think that way. And then my friend Jace, who is a PhD, uh, Old Testament scholar, also studied with Pete Enns, um, is always like, Josh, you read the Bible more. It's like, all right, cool. Well, here's Daniel. <laughs> but anyway, all that to say. Um, for people who maybe are like me and had similar experiences where, uh, they don't want to touch the book of Romans, maybe let alone the Bible, or, uh, maybe there's someone like Greg was referencing earlier and they're like, okay, uh, this Christian thing's kind of cool. I'm a little bit newer to it. Uh, y'all are talking about Romans. Like, what is this book? Um, yeah, it's a big question. I know (laughs) if you have. If you had to like be like, hey, this is basically what Romans is about, how would you give an elevator pitch on Romans?
2: All right. Um, you know, I, I should have this down a, a lot more cleanly than, than I do. Uh, you know, it's just the problem of having three different ideas about what Romans is about so that I can multiply by three with my other three people in the room. Um, <laughs> uh, Romans at its core, is about God's faithfulness. Uh, God's faithfulness first to the people of Israel uh, and through the people of Israel to all of humanity and then through all of humanity to the entire created order. And by faithfulness there, it's First of all, God's faithfulness to do what God promised in Scripture. Um, that's a huge theme in Romans. Um, and it's in part important because the scriptures belong to Israel. And that's the way that um, God has, has made promises to this particular people, to the Jewish people. Um, and so that's part of that's part of it. Um, this faithfulness involves uh reconciliation and God dealing with the problem of the alienation between, uh, God and humanity and God dealing with the problem of, uh, people's alienation from each other, um, by creating a, a new people. Um, and then we're not, we're talking about God, uh, being faithful to all creation. Uh, I think Romans is, uh, works in new creation sort of theology where, um, you know, if you think back to kind of. Uh, you know the the Genesis narratives, Genesis one to three, are this, these great little um, depictions of a, a good world gone wrong. Right? Um, you know, laying aside the question of whether the fall is a is good language or you know don't don't give me your theology person stuff about uh, whether there's a fall or not. Um, but Genesis uh, two and three, it's really it's I mean it's this beautiful thing where it's like. Uh, you know, basically explaining a good world gone wrong. And it starts with, okay, God gives us, gives this great protected space in the garden and um, gives humans, he interprets the garden for humans and gives them authority to kind of enact God's interpretation of the world. And then that authority to interpret the world for God is sort of ceded to this serpent who comes and gives a different interpretation. And they're like, well, maybe, maybe this other interpretation of the word world is right. So they eat the fruit. And then you know, as the story goes on, um, the, the people are, the man and the woman are alienated from each other as they blame each other for, you know, it's, um, uh, the woman you gave me did this. Um, and then they're alienated from the creatures, right? Well, the serpent, uh, uh, tricked me and they're alienated from God. They go and hide when God comes uh, walking in the garden, and then they get booted from the garden, and God says that the the earth is gonna won't produce fruit for you anymore. It's gonna produce thorns and thistles, and you're gonna eat by the sweat of your brow. Right. So you know it's a depiction of everything going wrong from humanity's relationship with God above to God's relation to humanity's relationship with the dirt beneath and everything in between, and uh, and so you know uh, the 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 Jewish writers who are uh, talking about the restoration you know restoration whether it's a prophet like Isaiah or whether it's the writers of the gospel narratives or uh whether it's Paul they will they draw on these holistic ideas of what God's saving work looks like and Paul Paul's playing in that new creation sort of realm and he's talking in Romans about like powers that rule over us to make our lives not what they should be whether it's the power of death or the power of sin and then he even throws the power of the law in there and that gets kind of weird um and he, he talks about how um god is overcoming death through resurrection and um uh, resurrection by the way is all over the place in romans um and that's something I didn't harp on this book as much, but my first book and my doctoral dissertation were on resurrection in Romans, and it's it's kind of it's everywhere. And part of the what resurrection shows is that is God's faithfulness. So that if you are faithful to God, even to the point of laying down your life, um, because you're faithful to God, that does not preclude God from being faithful to you as an individual for your obedience to God. God can give you more on the other side of that death. So. Um, so you know that begins with Jesus. It's the hope for humanity. Um, but then uh, resurrected bodies are part of this new creation that um, that itself will be renewed. And Romans eight has language about being you new know, created order being set free from its slavery to corruption. So you know, whereas those those early Genesis chapters are you know humanity makes this mistake and the reverberations are just everywhere. It's not just you know, my relationship with God, but it's humanity's relationship with each other and the earth and the creatures. Um, the, the new creation and Jesus as second Adam figure, um, comes in and it's restored. And so God's faithfulness to creation and to, and to the story and to, or to the whole created order is, um, it doesn't end with like people having their sins forgiven. It, it ends with Uh, this cosmic vision of renewal, uh, where um, since we're in the Christmas season now, joy to the world, verse three, um, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So uh, Romans is, it's, it's painting that big cosmic picture in part, in large part to undergird the argument that even though the majority of the Jews in Paul's day were not responding to this message and believing that Jesus is the messiah that doesn't mean that god has given up on them and that one of the one of the most important things that his that the churches he helped found and the first century churches could do to put on display like to embody this gospel story is to accept one another as god has accepted them so he's trying to help form their imagination to help them become the kinds of communities that live out this holistic story of God's faithfulness that includes humans' relationship with each other um, across um, pretty deep um, ethnic and uh, racial sorts of divisions, um, and that lives out that kind of taking hold of that new creation and um, making it real in the present.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was more than a nutshell, man. That was like, that was a proper... uh, Yeah, the (laughs) elevator got stuck. Um, No, dude, that's right on, man. Well, how can you? I mean, honestly, that's like, (laughs) there's just some things you can't nutshell. (laughs) And and I remember one of the things from when my uh, one tiny little little facet of my uh, PCA ordination process uh, way, way, way back in the day. Was I remember you pretty much had to say that, that they could ask you any chapter in the Bible, the entire Bible, and you'd tell them what was in that chapter, um, and so for, for for the entire Bible, and so yeah, you know, we broke apart Romans, and it was you know just one of the many of, of all the books, but it was you know breaking it apart, of course through a very reformed uh, lens. So it was interesting as my my brain again that was uh, you know twenty over twenty years ago uh but uh, it, it, but but still kind of tracking oh yeah there's roman's 1 and then we get to uh, roman's uh, 6 and then 7 and oh yeah there's number 8 and then everything shifts after that uh just kind of watching the tracking but i do think it's impossible to nutshell but um i had a million thoughts and and questions as you were uh speaking i guess one uh one question is and you you touched on this towards the end um so uh you know paul is trying to uh spread his message uh and initially his audience uh w- which is uh, the jewish audience he's trying to convince them uh and 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 please nuance and correct me if i'm incorrect in this perspective but that paul is trying to inviting people to realize that jesus is the messiah uh or that jesus is uh, the christ and so i'm mean, i'm throwing some different language out there that you can dance with and and move on the audience the jewish audience is not particularly responsive um, and so he begins to uh, share this which uh, answers who do you think who would in your experience in your study, is the book of Romans predominantly who is who is well first let me just say, what is the percentage of of uh, assurance that Paul actually is the author of Romans, which I've got you know some thought but what, what what you know versus say Hebrews. but so in in your in in your study, what's the 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 confidence that Paul's the author of Romans and then subsequently, who is he writing to?
2: Uh, Okay. So almost everybody thinks Paul wrote Romans. Um, Very few people. There was a guy named Bruno Bauer in the 19th century. Um, Don't ask me why I remember that, Um, but him, but he, that was almost the only person. Um, And uh, so yeah, very, very much Paul when people are like, you know, Paul wrote seven letters. This is always one of them. Um, So this is Paul. And he is writing to when he's when when he addresses the audience, when he's not in character, when he's not like, you know, going back and forth with an imagined um, interlocutor or whatever. When he addresses his audience, he says Gentiles. He's he is writing to the Gentile church at Rome. Um, you know, I'm writing tiles. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. So I magnify my ministry to make them just um and you know that's in like chapter 11 and chapter uh when he's in the letter opening and the letter opening that's when you uh, who this is going to um it's to the romans and he, when he's talking about himself and he says you know, we received this ministry to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So um, those are just a couple of examples, but he is writing to Gentiles about Israel and about um, God's faithfulness to them. And that's part of the weirdness of this letter. Um, And why, you know, I'm not uh, like Paul. Okay, so Paul is... um, Paul is getting ready to go to Jerusalem. Like he took up a collection um, for, for the, um, for the church in Jerusalem uh, among his churches and like how I put together Paul's life. It's um, he's, I think all of the letters we, well, I think Galatians first, second Corinthians and Romans are all written very close together. And um, so Paul is doing this thing where he's like, okay, my churches are going to take up money. We're going to bring it back for the poor people in Jerusalem. And I think he's peace thinking about it in terms of, uh, Isaiah's prophecy that the wealth of the nations is going to come in. He doesn't say so, but you know, um, it's, it's very possible. Um, but what's happening in these later parts of, uh, of his ministry, like Galatians, uh, you know, the thing with Galatians is, um, there's this tension about whether Paul's law-free men- mission to the Gentiles is valid, whether it's legitimate to tell people you don't have to be circumcised, you know, eat the right foods or whatever. Too much discontinuity. And I think Paul is losing. Um, Galatians is written because somebody, you know, the a more conservative Jewish mission movement came behind him. And they were like, Hey, this is right. Paul's a 10 percenter. you know, like we need to, if we're going to be worshiping the God of Israel, we have to do all the stuff that, that he says. Um, and then if you, okay. So if you look at the, this is like, okay, sorry, this is Bible nerd. This is like Bible nerd geekery stuff. So if you look at, um, if you look at the end of first Corinthians, he says, okay, I'm taking up this collection and Uh, I'm taking it up in Macedonia and and in Galatia, and like I want you guys to be ready when I get there, right? Um, So that's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a very – like the tone is very different. And now Paul, he's defending himself against um, accusations that he's not a real apostle, the other apostles seem to be throwing out their Jewish street cred. And at the end of the letter, he's telling them about how to prepare for the collection and Galatia is not mentioned anymore, just the, um, the churches in Macedonia. So now it's just the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And at the end of Romans, he says, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia have made this gift and I'm taking it. So um, I think he was expecting Galatia to participate. When he sent them when he sent someone to collect the money, um, he's like, "Oh, crap, This thing is happening." And then the same this same mission movement has come to Corinth and caused him trouble. And he's writing Romans from Corinth. I think he's been able to tamp it down there. But he's going back to Jerusalem, and it is, and Jerusalem is the place from which this more conservative, law observant christianity is going out it's when men come from james right that peter you know start to back off and in, uh, in antioch so this is this is an ongoing very real so all of this to say that i think the question of how does paul's god as he preaches it where you don't have to keep the law How, what does that mean about God's ongoing covenant faithfulness to Israel, to Israel's place in the covenant, to um, Israel that doesn't, um, you know, believe that Jesus is the Messiah and what are we supposed to do with these Gentiles um, and do they have to convert or not? Uh, He is writing about all of those things in a letter addressed to Rome, but I think that I... I think that a lot of what's happening also is a dress rehearsal for Jerusalem because he's going to have to, he's going there in part to, um, to, to defend himself again, um, to, to continue his particular understanding of uh, the, the ability of Gentiles to participate in the people of God without becoming Jewish, um, which is uh, a really, which is a really hard sell.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, and I think too one of uh Paul's issues um that he's having or I mean maybe not you I I'm not a Bible scholar so you tell me um is that Paul as well I mean a bunch of um you know biblical authors do this both old and new testament but they're kind of uh taking uh past uh stories or scripture that they know very well that's been a a standing part of the tradition and then reinterpreting uh these elements um through the lens of their present moment and also through the lens of the person of well for Paul the person of Jesus and so for Paul um as Paul is doing this as Paul is uh reinterpreting uh past Jewish scripture right because Paul knows this stuff um in light of this new whole Jesus thing that he has going on, um, he has to make some kind of like weird moves uh, throughout mm-hmm. that. Right. And yeah. so you kind of, you make like a big point about this in your book. And so I wanted to, it seemed like an like a nice uh, thing to throw in there as you were speaking um, because it, it seems to tie in. So like this weird interpretive thing, Paul is doing, uh, what is he doing? And do you see that as also maybe part of um, why he was facing some resistance? Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great
2: question. Um, the, uh, yeah, if anybody, like, if you want to send someone like on a road toward having a conservative, you know, sort of inerrantist like understanding of the Bible, just completely blown to crap, just tell them to look up every like biblical citation when they're reading the new Testament, like, you know, read the new Testament writer and then go see what it was talking about in its original context. And if you will let yourself read you, you will, you'll probably be crying. Like it's the the new Testament writers interpret scripture based on the starting point that Jesus is the um, the crucified and risen Jesus is the Messiah, is the promised Messiah. Okay, um, and I mean it, it's it's interesting. Like in the in the the Luke stories, like the the road to Emmaus, right? The the idea that Jesus has to open their minds to understand the scriptures, that Jesus has to basically walk them through and reinterpret the bible for them because i mean what does that mean that means that if you sit down and read the the scriptures of israel what christians sometimes call the old testament like you're not going to read that and be ready for jesus but if you know jesus you can go back and reread the reread the scriptures of israel as though like they're they're talking about him okay um so i mean so um, um, and this is just by the way, this is just what everybody does. Right. I mean, when you sit down and have your quiet time and you read, you know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And you're like, thank goodness God has plans for me. Like God does not desire my ruin, whatever. You've just taken something that God to the people of Israel as a whole, you know, whenever year that was written, like 500 B.C., and you've um on the assumption that you, there's a whole bunch of assumptions that you're not conscious of. I'm a Christian, this is my book, um, it applies to me because I'm part of the people, God speaks it, and God speaks it to me. Like you are reinterpreting that thing that it has nothing to do with you. God's talking about Israel, and He's gonna bring them back from exile and you know, and restore them and give them their king and give them their land. Um the first thing to do is all do this the new testament writers and paul is no exception uh do it as well and so um he is like it so the jesus the christ event is the point for him right um i mean remember paul was a pharisee and he knew scripture before and he didn't believe in jesus um so then when he comes to believe in jesus he has to think that Scripture means something differently now than he thought it meant before he encountered Christ and uh, and and believed that he was the Messiah. So uh, um, sometimes it's more or less obvious, um, but um, so Deut- uh, so Romans ten is a it's a great it's a great starting point if you want to mess with this stuff. So um, he's trying to argue in Romans ten that there are basically two different ways of thinking about righteousness. Oh gosh! Now I got to talk about righteousness. Righteousness, righteousness basically is how do I have whatever I need to be vindicated when God judges me? When God looks at my life and says, "Yeah, that's that's the life I'm looking for." What what is God looking at? And and what is that? What is that stuff? And so Paul's like, okay, there's basically two ways of thinking about this. One is the righteousness from the law, and that is like this. You know, what happens if you if you do the commandments? If you obey the commandments, you can get the righteousness from the law, which Sorry, reformed people. Paul actually thought he had that um, based on keeping the law. But anyway, that's another that's another argument. But um, it's in Philippians. I didn't make it up. Um, And he says, but then there's this other kind of righteousness, which is the righteousness that comes from faith. And so what he wants to do now is argue that scripture itself, um, the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament, if you if you must, actually shows us these two things. And, you know, here's the righteousness based on faith. So um, he's like, well, the righteousness based on the works of law says whoever does these things will live by them. All right. So you've got to you got to do the law. And that's that's one thing he's he's quoting Deuteronomy, I think. And he's like, but the righteousness based on faith says don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. and he's quoting he's quoting from um from Deuteronomy here, Deuteronomy chapter 30. don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven and then he interprets that for you. He says that means to bring Christ down, all right, okay um and don't say who will descend into the abyss. And he says that means to bring Christ up from the dead um all right, um, but what does it say? Scripture says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, Um, and he said Okay, I'm gonna interpret that for you. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right. So basically, Deuteronomy 30 preaches my gospel, which is if you believe in the the, um the death and resurrection of Jesus and his and that he's the believe in the resurrection of Jesus and he's the enthroned Lord, then you'll be saved. That's what Deuteronomy 30 is talking about. And that is what stands over against the righteousness of works, which is you've got to do the law. Okay. Go read Deuteronomy 30. You know what it's all about? It's all about the law. Um, when when Moses says, Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, Moses interprets that in the character of Moses in Deuteronomy 30 and says, Because what what because the law has already been brought down for you. God has already given you the law, He's already given you the word. Don't say who will, um, Paul says descend into the abyss. Deuteronomy says who will cross the ocean for us to bring it near. You don't have to do that. Why? Because the word is already near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart and in your, and Deuteronomy says, and it's in your hand so you can do it. So Paul takes a passage that is all about the, the idea that you can keep the law because god has given it to you and he's brought it close to you and god has put it on your heart and you can do it and paul's like this is actually talking about um jesus uh who is the enthroned lord who's been raised from the dead and um you know if you confess and believe and live into this into this narrative then then you can be saved so it's um it, it's he literally makes it say the opposite of like if you were if you were if okay Paul if if the thing was okay we've got it we've got works and we've got faith um, we're going to go and, and ransack Bible verses about works these are the these are the works verses um, and he he has them over there um, it's not always that uh, egregious but the the point is and this is another thing the point is scripture isn't the thing. <laughs> The, the, the saving story of Jesus is the thing. and that's one of the things that I think is so beautiful in getting back to that question of why should I why should I give my time to the Bible? One thing that happens when you give your time to the Bible is you realize that it's the the Bible itself is an embodiment of interpretations of a story that is more ultimate than the Bible itself. It's that, and you know, anybody who wrote the new Testament believed the story of Jesus before they, before they wrote their story. The early Christian communities believed the story of Jesus before there was a new Testament. Um, Paul's communities believed the story of Jesus and the proclamation, the saving story of Jesus before they had any letters from Paul and before Paul's letters were thought to be scriptural. So there it's scripture helps us get the story right but it also shows us that um that those that it is the the saving story of jesus that we have to tease out how to tell well and how to tell faithfully and part of what makes scripture happen is that people fight about what a good telling of the story what a faithful telling of the story looks like but in those moments with those scriptural reinterpretations what i mean what you see is that the the scripture is not ultimate um, well God is ultimate and then the saving story of Jesus is penultimate and scripture at best is anti-penultimate and then you get to say anti-penultimate in a sentence and then you feel really smart
0: oh no thank you so much uh that was awesome and I anti-anti-penultimate I'm gonna have to write that down and, and work it into the vocabulary especially around the brewery you know um I'll be you know Bryce will assign me a task and be like I don't know man that's like kind of Andy you know, anti penalment Um, <laughs> I think I'm gonna do something else instead. Um, <laughs> but uh I had a quick follow-up question uh to what you just said. Um, so if and this is something that I like to talk uh about with my friend Jason, we never land anywhere. I have an opinion. Well, actually, we both kind of don't have we have thoughts. Um, so if people like Paul are within the pages of scripture, this book that as Christians we somehow ascribe some authority to whatever you want to call that we don't have to argue over what that means that the bible is authoritative um and are the scripture the, the writers of scripture are taking their the tradition that they received and then reinterpreting it in light of what uh they perceive god is doing currently in their present moment can you and i as people who are not writing the bible currently cuz that's we're not allowed to do that anymore um can we do the same thing like as a theologian or as a bible scholar do are we allowed to in air quotes are we allowed to take the received christian tradition and then reinterpret it through what we think uh i don't know we'll use christian words the holy spirit is doing today or what we believe god is doing today um yeah, so I don't know that might be like a I don't intend that as like a gotcha question but like I'm genuinely <laughs> curious what your thoughts might be if if our bible heroes are doing this can we do it?
2: Yeah, um uh I I say yes and uh from a number of different angles. One, have you ever heard of something called a sermon?
0: Oh yeah, good point about sermons. <laughs> like,
2: every sermon is doing that. Every sermon is doing that, um, giving a, an interpretation. I mean, no offense to preachers. I, I love all preachers, but I had to I had to settle this in my heart. No preacher gives a crap what the verse meant in its original first century context, um, because it's it's completely, you know, most of it is completely useless for your modern audience, like what is happening in the first audience. Um, I know that's not entirely true, but like that's not how we you know when somebody is preaching it's it is taking it's interweaving this text with the theology and the current moment and making that text mean something now that in a, at least in some senses it's never meant before and it, it it'll bear different levels of resemblance to it so that's one thing i'll say is that we all do it all the time and there's no getting around it um the other thing i'll say is One of the ways that I think about the Bible being authoritative is that it's authoritative in showing us what to do, not uh, not authoritative 100% in telling us what to say. Um, I approach the Bible very much like when I was reformed. I approached the reformers, which is to be faithful to the reformers means that I'm going to adopt their method of the sola scriptura and allow that to come in and critique and you know modify my theology which no presbytery ever is going to let you do um uh this is what, oh, in in the pca or you know in, in these more conservative if you're pc usa or whatever but um um and so uh, i think that's a gr- i actually think that what the the apostles do with scripture is a great model for how we should think about what we're to do. And now, okay, now I'm going to invoke a theologian. Um, one of, this is like the only line from theology. No, there's, I've got like four like theology lines I always quote. This is one, it's Karl Barth. And at the beginning of the church dogmatics, he says, the task of dogmatics is not to say what the apostles and prophets said. The task of dogmatics is to say what we must say on the basis of what the apostles and prophets have said. And that's that is a hundred percent right. Um, and and I think you can you know, substitute the word dogmatics for theology or preaching or um, or biblical interpretation. Um, so yes, um, we should be doing that um see i said i said carl barton then all of a sudden like everything else just just left my mind and all i lost all of my bible scholar mojo um i had a i had other important ways i was going to i was going to validate my opinion but um,
1: well le- leaping yeah. off of what you leaping off what you just said i really appreciate that so okay so it was interesting and and, and maybe this is a macro uh uh kind of perspective on, on what you've shared. So uh, obviously uh, when we talk, we started, we talked about, you know, the Bible being weaponized uh, in its current context, which is oftentimes uh, people approaching the Bible to make it say what they want it to say, to justify whatever their opinion is. God said this fact uh, and then weaponized. And then what you did was kind of stripped it back from that back to its original historical context within the book of Romans to, to show what Paul was dealing with uh, uh, the the agenda of his uh, credibility being challenged um, with uh, uh, going through Macedonia, the issues with Galatia, and then kind of justifying himself as he's going to uh, Jerusalem. And then interestingly, and then what I love about that is then you broaden back up off of that to talk about then what is the lens through which we can now engage scripture, which is very broad, as you just quoted Bart, in terms of... Uh, we We're not approaching the Bible as constitutional scholars, chapter and verse to say, what is God's opinion on X? Does he like smoother, crunchy peanut butter? Does he like this or that? And then, uh, based on that constitutional order to say, God likes X, y and Z, but that we have the freedom to explore. But this is I just think this is an important nuance that a, that that on one level, the person that has weaponized the Bible is doing the same thing. They're saying, I, i'm I'm looking for God. I, I I'm trusting my interpretation through our existing cultural lens. Uh, to determine, but but the difference is one is weaponizing. This is the final conclusion of of God's opinion, mm-hmm. and what you're inviting is into the 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 great exploration and dance uh, of exploring Scripture's meaning in its current context in our current context. But you're saying the point of that is not to nail down the one particular truth per se, in terms of this is fact, this is God's opinion, but rather, how would you describe that? Uh, In in our current context, we are now engaging scripture. We are entering into this exploration and to be poetic, a dance for what purpose? You know, why do you do it on on a practical level today in my life? Like I've got bills to pay. I've got relationship tension and stress in particular. You know, I've got, I'm listening to NPR and realizing there's shit going down in Ukraine. uh, You know, Why am I stopping to explore the Bible in its current context for my life? And 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 again, this just as Paul did in his day, or just as what's the invitation for us?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the invitation is to have our to allow the Bible to help us uh, transform our imagination about what uh, life giving uh, life giving life on way of way of life is uh here on Earth I sorry I said I was trying to find a different word from life and I just got stuck there um but um you know whether it's reading the Jesus stories and like allowing that to form a, a sense of like people matter and um you know, what is it okay, Jesus really only wants us to do two things love God and love our neighbors, right um and so what does loving your neighbor look like? wow well maybe you, jesus like bumps up against a lot of neighbors and uh and these stories so you know start to get ideas like oh how about this there's only one time in all of these like stories of jesus like helping somebody that he doesn't uh that he he gives them something different from what they ask for like when the when the when the paralytic is let down and they he he forgives their sins but like, he doesn't bait and switch. People don't say, oh, you think that you're hungry, but what you really need is to be forgiven. You know, uh, you need to be reconciled with God. Or no, like, your broken body is actually the thing. And to love my neighbor means to let, my neighbor gets the agenda of what being loved looks like. They get to set the agenda of what their, what their need is. And, you know, that's, it's not my job to reinterpret their need so that I can give them the, the Bible verse and cookie that I have for them or, um, uh, to tell them, no, actually your real need is that, you know, you're a sinner and you need to stop having sex or, or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's, I think that's part of it. And, you know, some of the, um, here's, oh, so let me like give an example of, and i, I talk talked, you know, one of the places where I do, uh, a little bit of uh, revisionist reading on Paul is around uh, LGBT stuff. Um, and I do it based on like the, the bedrock of it is Pauline theology, which is early church theology about uh, our identity. And so there, are, as you read through, especially Paul's letters, um, you'll find that there is this recurring phrase. It's It's modified. It's not solid, but it's basically something like, um, in Christ, there's no longer Jew, Greek, slave free. Uh, um, and sometimes I say barbarian, Scythian, free man, whatever. And the, the the consensus among biblical scholars is that this is this represents early baptismal formula. So that um, you know, when you're baptized, these words are said, and the idea is that we're this is new humanity, and the old divisions don't exist anymore. And in Galatians, that includes um. No longer male and female. Uh, and that's just a little wedge into recognizing that all of these um pairs of opposites are ways that uh ancient people talked about um morality, um basically. And, uh there were hierarchies, they were social hierarchies, not just social differences, they were social hierarchies based on valuing certain people more than others. Um, and for, you know, the idea of a Greek versus a barbarian. Okay. Well, the Greeks are the educated ones and the barbarians are the ones walking around going, bah, 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 you know, like babbling like babies, cause we don't understand what their languages mean. Um, and so that means that the, the Greeks should rule the world. Um, that means that if you want to know what virtue looks like, um, you look at the Greeks because they're the educated ones. Um, and then um if you're doing your moral philosophizing then you'd be like oh well if you want to know what it means to be uh, an upright and just person look at this good self-controlled greek and then if you want to know what it's like to you know to be enslaved to your passions then look at these people who are our slaves these barbarians that we've conquered right so um the the point is that this ancient way of like talking about us and them is this full orbed patriarchal system um, and kind of one of the key components of it is that at root men are better than women, right? And so that's that's part of it. Men are better than women. Parents are better than their children. Owners are better than their slaves. Um, so the interesting thing about the New Testament is that it both perpetuates this Greco-Roman um, hierarchy by talking about morals and ethics of household codes and husbands and wives and wives submitting and children. And it also has these baptismal formulas that are inherently anti-patriarchal. But there hasn't been enough time or enough distance maybe to realize that, oh, these two things actually can't coexist. And the um, the, the baptismal narrative actually blows up this, this social hierarchy thing over here. Um, well, here's the deal. That social hierarchy thing also was the grid on which, um, sexual mores were, were cultivated. Who can you have sex with? Well, if you're a Roman man, you can basically have sex with anyone you want to, who's down the, the hierarchy, or shall we say down the pecking order from you. Um, as long as it wasn't like a free Roman woman who would then be somebody else's wife, because then, you know, you're, um, then you're asserting dominance over another free roman citizen and then you know that's and that's not good um so like you know if you're a man you can have sex with your your slaves that's fine your man slaves that's whatever but you'd better be acting like a man in other words don't be on the receiving end of that encounter why because then you're acting like a woman and the problem with that is that you're acting like a woman when you're a man so you're debasing yourself right so the the sexual um, mores were based on maintaining this gendered hierarchy. All right, when you see a frieze of uh, Roman conquering this this manly Roman warrior conquering this person who's representing the nations of the east, and it's a woman with her skirts hiked up. Right, the point is like we're the men, uh, and they they're the dominated girly girls. Um, and and so uh, you know this is this whole thing. So then when you get to things in Paul's letters where he says like. Um, you know, people who are malakoi, who are softies, first Corinthians, won't inherit the kingdom of God, right? That is creating, that is a a moral statement that's based on the idea that women are inferior to men. And so if you're a man who's acting like a softie, that's acting like a woman, you kind of betrayed yourself and you're living unvirtuous right but if you if you deconstruct the patriarchal system then saying oh you're a man acting like a woman it it doesn't it only has it if women are inferior to men like it's
1: well i think you're uh he's frozen up again but okay i don't know about you josh but that that's one of the i i really appreciated that breakdown uh and approaching it from uh understanding there's no slave or free uh gentile or jew, um uh Greek or barbarian I, I think that's that's a uh, to take those uh presuppositions of hierarchical based morality and begin to I think appropriately extrapolate uh a freedom from uh, top down uh oppression literally yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally. In many ways. Sorry. Sorry, Dan. you froze up. I just was just saying how much, uh, you know. I've I've read that verse many times, but I, I've I've never heard it quite broken down in terms of such a solid uh, trajectory. You know. Again, I think that understanding the inherent uh, in 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 Paul's day what he was breaking down, but then a very rational, logical, reasonable, sane trajectory tell us. Uh, from that same breakdown, not only of divisiveness but morality uh, uh, assigned with that divisiveness and hierarchical approach, as that continues to break down, uh, leads us to uh, embracing LGBTQ community. Anyway, right on, man. I I've, that beautifully articulated before you froze up. You were you were in stride, man. You were in yeah, stride. Yeah, it you know.
2: did freeze up. But I, um, so like I wanted to just kind of bring that back and say, and that's why like I. I reread. I do think that Romans one, Paul like gives a an anti male same sex thing there, um, but you know, for reasons I, I point out in the book, I think I think he does that based on patriarchal reasons, and so like that's an example of me kind of Pauling Paul right. Like I'm reinterpreting Paul based on the what I think is at the heart of the gospel message uh, narrative that that he proclaims uh, instead and and then you know just to to put a little bow on it like because of all that what i just said and um and th- that that summary that <laughs> was just given as well i agree with the idea that the ordination of women is the slippery slope to inclusion of lgbt people i do and i'm not apologetic about it because once you've reconfigured gender hierarchy um uh, once you reconfigure gender you reconfigure sex you can't, you can't not. Um, And uh, this is, that's actually an important part of my story. I used to do a lot of stuff with the Christians for biblical equality. um, You know, they're basically conservative evangelicals arguing for full inclusion of women in church, which is awesome. And I I would do a lot for them. And then there was the summer where I was doing all this reading on um, uh, ancient Roman sexual mores around around same sex interactions. And I realized that every argument that I was making in favor of women's full participation in ministry, an early Roman would have heard as overturning all of their opposition to uh, same sex sex in the ways that they had articulated it. And I was like, yeah, you just cannot, you can't mess with gender without messing with sex. And and you have to mess with gender in order to to, to be living into this new creation narrative, right? That's what Paul's about the new creation narrative. and this is the the great thing about that Galatians text where he says no longer Jew Greeks great. she says he says no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free. Then he says male and female, which is uh, a deployment, an exact deployment of the language of Genesis one when God says male and female he created them. Um it's just he this is about new creation. And so, you know, it. it's it's saying that in Christ, this even, okay, just say that Genesis 1 is a great argument for only male-female um, pair bonding. Well, Paul says that doesn't exist anymore um, in Christ. So it's only in the church, uh, in Christ, in the new creation that it's okay to have uh, LGBT uh, same-sex relationships.
0: <laughs> nice. Right on. Right on. Well done. Well, I have... Um, I have, dang it. I have two more nerdy questions I want to ask you. Um, one of them is kind of like, a, not as it's a serious question, but it's kind of me being silly. Um, one thing that you talk about extensively in your book that, um, was very helpful to me, uh, because it's an idea that more recently I've come across that has been very uh, just helpful in general. Um, and I first picked it up actually in my interactions with Trip, um, which is this idea about uh, the faithfulness of mm-hmm. God or the faithfulness of Jesus versus uh, faith in Jesus. Um, so that's the one, one thing I want to ask you, which is probably my priority in the thing. And then I wanted to be like, uh, so Romans very obviously is about predestination and calvinism how does that work <laughs> uh i would much rather talk about the faithful one but you can since you know time is short you can pick which one uh you feel is more appropriate
2: <laughs> yeah let's talk about the, let's talk about the faith okay so um this is okay the word faith in the, the word that gets translated faith in uh in in our english translations can mean either faith like something you you believe uh it can mean faithfulness um as well and with faithfulness it could mean also uh and and then it could also mean something more like trust so not just believing something but giving yourself over to uh to something and that's and that's like Matt
0: oh sorry but that's like Matt Matt Bates um who's a scholar he makes that argument in a few of his texts, right? Mm -hmm. because he's been on the show before okay cool sorry i'm just thinking out loud because i'm tracking with you sorry right yeah no that's that's great so um
2: the the so the argument is okay so that's that's one thing to know then there are a number of places in paul's letters where he will say um something like a, a literal translation would be the faith of jesus christ and that could mean two different things um and so basically faith kind of has an implied verb, right? To, to believe or to entrust yourself to someone. And when you say the faith of someone, that person could either be the implied subject or the implied object. Um, let me give you, let, let's, take it up. Let's take it into a different realm. When I was in seminary, um, one day, all of us, um, went to our mailboxes and found that we had been given copies of the book, the worship of the English Puritans. Um, and, I was excited about this because I was in school with a lot of people who were worshiping the English Puritans, and I wanted to know where it came from and you know what its defining features were. And I was very, very disappointed to find out that this book was actually about how the Puritans worshiped God. It wasn't about how modern people were worshiping the Puritans. Um, but that, that idea, okay, so worship of the English Puritans. Worship is, has an implied verb. And so English Puritans can either be the subject, that is, the English Puritans worship god or they could be the object of worship right um my classmates worship the english puritans so with this faith of christ thing christ can either be the subject christ is faithful or christ entrusts himself to god or the object um people believe in christ And most of your English translations uh, have traditionally, well, after the King James, um, have traditionally translated it in. So belief in Jesus. Um, But there's a a good case to be made and a growing um, who you that a lot of times faithfulness, this faith is really about God's faithfulness in Christ or Christ's faithfulness to God in going to death on the cross. So what is the, what is the faith say? Is it your belief or is Jesus faithfulness in going to the cross to die like, like God wanted him to, or is it God's faithfulness to the people of Israel? So the idea that um, Paul might talk about the faith of God uh, is uh, that actually happens in, in, Romans 3 very clearly uh when Paul's trying to starts teasing out the question of what is it can, is it possible for God to still be seen as faithful if Israel as a whole is faithless, if Israel as a whole does not believe and receive this message and um Paul says yes um uh, let
1: uh you're right when he's getting to the good part Faithful, right, their
2: faithlessness will not nullify the faith of God, will it? Um, so, so he says, um, their faithlessness will not nullify the faith of God, will it? Which is God's faith. Um, so that's like the first time we see that that phrase that's there. And he says, no, um, let like, like God be found true, though every person be found a liar, as it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your word and may prevail when you are. So the first justification by faith, in the book of Romans is God's it's God who will be justified when you measure God by whether or not he has been faithful to do what God said he would do which is be faithful to Israel and send them the Messiah and save them as a people um so once you start playing with this and and seeing where it comes up it can be pretty uh transformative so like let's go to Romans um like 16:17 the the thesis statement of the letter right uh where it's talking about um Uh, how salvation, Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who, uh, to everyone who believes, to everyone who has faith. Okay. Uh, Great. Um, Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. as, As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the way that that's often translated, like in the NIV translates it, um, in in the gospel um the righteousness of god is revealed by faith from first to last as it's written the righteous will live by faith and the idea is like right, i have faith um i'm this is how i'm going to live i will i will have eternal life if i believe in this in this message right and um and it's first to, by faith from first to last so you know, everything is about just believing um but then it it makes this it it does something weird to the verse. Um, the verse says, "In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith." How does me believing put God's righteousness on display? That's just weird. How do, righteousness? Like, how is God shown to be faithful and right and holy just because I think something is right? Um, okay, so what if it's this? Um, the, the The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So, like. Out of either God's faithfulness to His people or Jesus' faithfulness to um, to God, and then that goes out unto other people trusting and believing. So, ek ek pisteos from faith from Christ's faithfulness uh, unto ours. Oh no! Okay, you're still with me. Okay, I see a nod. I thought I thought we had frozen for a second. Good. Um, And then what does this verse mean? He quotes Habakkuk: "The the righteous will live by faith." What if? and then that's the from faith right the righteousness of god is revealed from faith as it's written the righteous will live from faith what if this is talking about jesus faith um the righteousness of god is revealed in the faithfulness of christ and go to habakkuk now the the righteous not just generally righteous people but the righteous one jesus will live out of his faithfulness. This is talking about God raising Jesus from the dead after Jesus being faithful and going to death on the cross. And then, okay, so that's how God's righteousness is revealed. Out of Jesus' faithfulness, um, God raises him from the dead. That shows God's righteousness. It goes out to the world and people believe, and that ingathering of the people is part of God's righteousness that had to happen, Paul says. Oh, and also, by the way, this is how Paul outlined the gospel in the first seven verses of the... Where he says this is the gospel, it's about Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. And then that went out unto people who believed that the Gentiles, that other people as well. So it, it completely transforms our understanding of what saving faith is, in that it's it's at its core, it's God's faithfulness and it's Christ's faithfulness in going to the cross. And then, yeah, and then what our faith then becomes is not just like thinking the right things. It becomes um, embodying the faith narrative of Jesus. So when Paul says then, like what, what I want from the Gentiles, this is chapter one, verse six or seven, is the obedience of faith. Obedience and faith aren't opposites. Doing stuff and thinking the right things aren't opposites because the faith that's saving is the faithfulness of Jesus and going to the cross. So there's a whole way of life. There's a Jesus story that is cross-shaped and ends at the resurrection that Paul is inviting people into and to participate. Paid in and the whole reformation dichotomy of like thinking the right things or doing things to earn your salvation just gets flushed down the toilet because the whole idea is, is that saving faith is faith that is living out and participating in the the saving faith story of jesus which is this cross-shaped story of giving up your life so that others may live which is as much paul and saying you've got to be crucified with christ as it is jesus saying take up your cross and follow me
1: Whew, man! Dude, solid. Thank you, Daniel. And I do think, I mean, on, uh, that impacts on so many levels. Uh, from you know, I, I think if you've been in the West very long, and of course, you were you were in North Carolina for a while, both at Wake Forest and at Duke. I'm still in in the Bible Belt, uh, but I think even across the country, in, in predominantly evangelical circles, this this understanding of the gospel that I think we've uh, kind of uh, service sized from the Reformation of uh, penal substitutionary atonement uh down to um say the prayer uh to get justified. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it's very transactional, uh it, it's uh uh predominantly legal uh in nature, um, and it is also in, in Brian McLaren's words, uh devolved into an evacuation plan for the next life. You know, it's a um uh how do we get there? And I think what what you're inviting us into is not only is that um potentially dangerous, but I think you're you're saying it's certainly not what was in the mind of Paul uh, at the time uh, and a, a biblical uh, understanding uh, of of the gospel, but inviting us to a very more embodied uh, ex- experience of what faith means to be lived out uh, mm-hmm. and that we are we are joining in in the words of Bishop Michael Curry, who's my big, big boss, uh, that we are joining this Jesus movement. Uh, and and it, it is this beloved community that we are a part of uh, and uh, versus uh, predominantly a creedal idea-based system of uh, intellectual assent in order to see if we're in or out.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, the idea that thinking the right things is what makes you Christian is one of the, the worst missteps that the
0: church has ever taken
1: mm. yeah yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah for sure and Daniel just to wrap things up because I know we have to 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 bring this to a close um one thing that I love about that reframing is that it 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 ties God's righteousness uh, into human fidelity mm-hmm. um and so our like our human fidelity matters and what we do matters. Um, and two, when, you know, we talk about Greg and I have talked about salvation before is kind of, um, this will be less biblical words and this is going to sound more like woo woo, but, um, salvation is almost like, uh, this reawakening to who we truly are, who we were created to be, um, Mm -hmm. which in Christian language, we just say is found in the person of Jesus. Jesus shows us a better way to be human. And then we can live into that reality. And so That. Um God's righteousness being tied to human fidelity and and salvation as this lived experience fits nicely into that like woo-woo weird stuff, right? And so I just personally from um my own uh, perspective, um it just it works it works nicely and it fits uh, my experience um but also uh my experience that I have um of the divine and then just like, I don't know, the it bears good fruits to use uh, some nice biblical language. (laughs) No, I'm so with you. I I think
2: um, Paul's understanding of Jesus as as Messiah, but that so much of what he talks about Jesus is us together with Jesus. And he has this second Adam theology where it's like, this is about becoming really and truly and fully human as God always intended us to be. Uh, which i think is very parallel to jesus use of the um the son of man language which actually just means like the human the human being uh is how jesus talks about himself um i've got a book on that too the human jesus of the synoptic gospels um manifested by god um but yeah but to be able to to recognize that yes this is this is about becoming more who we are and better who we are not not ultimately about escaping from like humanity is a bad thing or you know, like i'm only human or whatever like image bearer of god like when people look at you when people when you look at your neighbor um you're seeing the, as close as you'll ever come to seeing the face of god and to one of the problems like this is a, I, I do feel like one of the one of the challenges with uh height with high Christology and Jesus being God is that it 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 takes away um it, it people it it makes people in practice it makes people mute the humanity and everything that's like well Jesus had to die so he had to be human but then all the awesome stuff about Jesus is that you know here's God with us God incarnate like no like he healed those people and then you know what he told the disciples to go heal the people and he going to feed those people but instead he gave the bread to the disciples and said go feed the people with this like yeah um you we have to like this is come back to the Bible come back to the Bible and discover how um all whether it's Paul's weaving of the story it's you know as as heady as it sometimes is or the the gospels weaving of the story they're weaving us into the Jesus story and, um, recognizing that what our life of faith looks like is supposed to look like that Jesus story. Um, so that, so that our lives will be received as, uh, as good to our neighbors and as love to our neighbors is, um, that's the, that's the pattern of the narrative that that we're called to embody.
1: Right, Daniel, that, that, that really lands a plane, man. So thank you. And, uh, and I know you've got a hard stop here, but, uh, before you go, uh, I just want to say, uh, listener, if you've, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, if you are coming from a place where maybe maybe you are a recovering uh, evangelical and have put down the Bible, or maybe you are coming from uh, outside of the Christian faith tradition and just seen the Bible weaponized, or, or maybe you're just a good uh, theology nerd and B- B- Bible nerd and really want to dig in. I, I think it, in all of those unique perspectives, uh, Daniel's book, uh, uh, Romans for Normal People is uh really well written it's really accessible it's genuinely welcoming it's 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 solidly uh, credentialed and academic but in a way that invites us uh to me uh in describing what he's describing into an experience of the new creation this is not just a, a static academic ivory tower work although it's clearly solidly uh rooted in academia but it's really inviting us uh to a new perspective which i feel like uh, is is desperately needed uh in this in this time and space and and daniel i feel like dude, there's been so many so many gems and i'm you know i've been i've been in this game a long time i'm 50 years old and i've been digging this a long time and you i you said some stuff tonight and you were digging into stuff that it's just a fresh gorgeous articulation that did exactly what you said was the intention of looking at the bible it's 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 engaging scripture to uh Reinvigorate our hearts and imaginations for new creation, and not just as an observer, as participant. Um, and so, thank you for that, man. This was really uh, enlightening. It was intellectually stimulating, but also, I, I think, just was full of heart. So, appreciate you being here, brother. Thanks for uh, being on our podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. Those are some of the, the best compliments that, that I could receive. Thanks, guys.
0: <laughs> yes, thank you, Daniel. We'll be sure to link your book in the uh, the show notes as well. So, good deal. And uh, listeners, as always, thanks for hanging out and uh, going peace.